Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 153, Nicholas II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Okay, everyone, let's pick up the story from last episode. When we last heard from the story, the subdeacon Hildebrand was off in Germany or France, and Stephen IX died instructing the people of Rome to wait until Hildebrand got back to elect the next pope. But this is not what happened. Instead, several of the powerful Roman families, led by the Tuscolani and the Crescenzi, you remember them from past episodes, they're the bad guys of our story, really, they decided they had enough of these reforming northern popes, and they decided it was time they took back what was theirs. They got together a group of supporters and basically stormed the city, seizing control and making their intentions known that they were going to elect one of their own, a pope. Many of the cardinals, including St. Peter Damien, the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia, fled Rome rather than be forced to elect someone pope against their will. And this is crucial because if you remember from past episodes, the Bishop of Ostia was always given the privilege of either ordaining the pope, a bishop, or if he was already a bishop, installing him as pope. Not all of the city were on the Tuscalani side. There was a guy named Leo who was a local noble, and his people in Trastevere held out against the invaders. But after some liberal bribery, the Tuscalani convinced the Roman people to elect their candidate, John the Bishop of Velletri, as pope. Now, John seems to have been a decent bishop. In fact, we heard about him last week when he was suggested by Stephen IX as a possible pope. And some suggest that this was forced on him by the Tuscalani rather than being his own initiative but he seems to have given in to them. The Tuscalani found a priest from Ostia and got him to put John on the throne, and he took the name Benedict X, which harkens back to our last Tuscalani Pope, Benedict IX, who we really don't want to go back to. But you can bet St. Peter Damon and Hildebrand aren't going to take this lying down. When Hildebrand got back to Italy, he was apprised of the situation, and the cardinals who had fled Rome met in December of 1058 and elected Gerard de Bourgogne, the Bishop of Florence. Gerard took the name Nicholas II, and he started heading back to Rome. Now, Gerard is a relatively poorly known figure in the 11th century. He seems to have come from northern France, hence the name which I butchered pronouncing, and he seems to have studied like Stephen IX in Liege. And the first we really hear about him as Bishop of Florence, and then we hear that he participated in some of the synods that Leo IX uh, called, and he undertook clerical reforms in his home diocese. His ardent desire for reform seems to have caught the eyes of later popes, including Victor II, who prompted him to hold a reforming synod in Florence, since Florence seemed to have been on the forefront of clerical reform. Florence was likewise the resident of the ruler of Tuscany, Godfrey the Bearded, which helped increase Gerard's stature and importance. Now, when it came time to selecting a pope, again without the direct imperial approval like last time, and outside of Rome with a hostile army ahead of them, it made sense that the cardinals would choose someone who was friendly with the other major political power in Italy at the time, the Duke Godfrey. With Godfrey's support and the help of, on the inside, from the pro-reform nobles in Trastevere, Pope Nicholas II, Hildebrand, and the rest of the papal household retook Rome, drove the Tuscolani from the area, and eventually captured their home cities south of Rome. Nicholas was firmly settled in the Lateran by January of 1059, and eventually, Benedict X dropped his claim to the papacy, and we now know him to be an antipope, but more on that later. 
Nicholas and the Reform Party around him immediately launched into a continuation of the process of church reform that the previous popes had already begun. During Easter of 1059, Nicholas called a synod, which is famous even today, well, at least it's famous among church circles, for being a major turning point in the process of reform. It proclaimed the usual condemnation of clerical concubines and priests violating the promise of celibacy, and more on that later. But the two areas of the synod which were truly remarkable dealt with the election of the Pope and the Eucharist. Now, when we think today about the election of the Pope, we think about, well, this. The Cardinals are getting ready, the secret ritual hours away for the first vote for a new Pope. In those intervening days, the Cardinals of the Church from around the world have gathered here in Vatican City. And today we'll enter under lock and key to what is called a conclave and begin the process of looking for a man to succeed him, to become the next Pope. Tomorrow, a world's focus will be trained on that simple chimney atop the Sistine Chapel, ready to offer all of its smoky history. We think about cardinals, conclaves, the Sistine Chapel, white smoke, etc. But as we've heard on this podcast, this wasn't always the case. The earliest recorded discussion of the election of the Pope is an account of the election of the Pope that is of St. Fabian, who had a dove land on his head, and everyone said, oh, he must be the Pope. So it's been very different in the past. We've had, for the longest time, the election controlled or influenced by outside political forces. The whole, the Roman emperor, the Byzantine emperor, the Holy Roman emperor, the Roman dictator. And there have been some laws written down about papal elections over time, but often they're just thrown out. Sometimes the guy who could get the biggest mob on their side and just enough of the clergy would be elected. Well, Nicholas, after fighting off the return of the Tuscolani control of the papacy, decided along with Hildebrand and his crew that it was time to standardize things and take the election of the successor of St. Peter out of the hands of local nobles. So to fix this problem, the synod produced a papal bull, which is in nomine domini, which is the first time really standardized papal elections were set down on paper. And it put the task of electing the pope in the hands of the cardinals. And I'll read you just a bit of the introduction, not only because it's awesome, but because it helps lay out the thought process of the reforming group in Rome at the time. Here they go. Ye know, most blessed and beloved fellow bishops and brothers, nor has it been hidden from the lower members also, how much adversity this apostolic chair, in which by God's will I serve, did endure at the death of our master and predecessor, Stephen of blessed memory. To how many blows, indeed, and frequent wounds it was subjected by the traffickers in simoniacal heresy, so that the columns of the living God seemed almost to totter already, and the net of the chief fisher to be submerged amid the swelling blasts in the depths of shipwreck. Wherefore, if it please ye, brethren, we ought prudently to take measures for future cases, and to provide for the state of the church hereafter, lest, which God forbid, the same evils may revive and prevail." Therefore, strengthened by the authority of our predecessors and of other holy fathers, we decree and establish. Now, he goes on to decree and establish the following regarding papal elections. First, the cardinal bishops, who were the bishops of the suburban sees around Rome, we've already heard a lot of them before, Ostia, Sabina, etc., they are going to be the main choosers of the pope, and their decision would then be ratified by the cardinal priests and the cardinal deacons. In nomini domini gave a vague nod, too, to the emperor, saying he had some role, but it was purposely not particularly clear. So here we see really the beginning of what is today nearly 1,000 years later, the way the pope is chosen. It's made some changes, and we'll go through those in future episodes, but 
In reality, this is the start of really entrusting the election of the Pope to the cardinals. And we also see at this point a college of cardinals which is much more recognizable to us today. The College of Cardinals, as we've kind of explored over the past couple episodes, stems basically from the clergy of Rome. If you were a pastor of a Roman parish or a Roman deacon or a Roman suffragan bishop, you were a cardinal. Now we see a College of Cardinals filled more and more with foreigners and non-Romans as the senior clergy of the church itself, not just the Roman church. The Reform Party and the church deliberately injected into the members of the Roman clergy holy and energetic monks and other clergy from around Europe adding a more universal dimension to the choosing of the Pope, but also starting the process of separating the College of Cardinals from the average Roman clergy to being an honorific position encompassing the church universal. And that's basically how cardinals operate today. They're from all over the world, but they have this titular title to a particular church in Rome, which where they're nominally the pastor of. And so that process stems really from this moment in church history. So the other famous outcome of the Easter Synod of 1059 dealt with the Eucharist. We talked before about the dispute regarding the teaching of Berenger of Tours, who had a heretical view of the Eucharist. Berenger said that in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the bread and wine did not change. Jesus was present in the Eucharist, but not in a substantial change, rather in a more spiritual way. So Berenger didn't believe in what we now know to be transubstantiation. It was a more ethereal version of a doctrine. By 1059, he decided he'd better go to Rome to explain his teaching, but he discovered upon arrival that the synod members were not sympathetic to his teaching. They required him to read a very almost overtly realistic, fleshy, hands-on kind of oath regarding the Eucharist. Now, this oath was written mostly by Bishop Humbert, and while some of the suggestions for the oath were more theologically nuanced, he went over the top with the realism. So the final oath that Berenger was told to read stated, The bread and wine which are placed on the altar are, after consecration, not only the sacrament, but also the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the senses, not only sacramentally, but in truth, are taken and broken by the hands of the priest and crushed by the teeth of the faithful. Berenger read the oath, but was not required to sign it. So eventually he would recant his oath, but we'll talk about that later. Now, this articulation and emphasis on sacramental realism of the Eucharist led to a change in liturgical practice as well. After the 1059 Easter Synod, more focus was put on the tabernacle in the church, and it became the practice that people genuflected before the reserved Eucharistic species. So we still do that today, and it dates prior to this, but this is when it gets standardized across the church. Along with those two big ticket items, the Easter Synod of 1059 continued the process of church reform. It specifically attacked simony, issuing a decree that clerics were completely forbidden from receiving any office in the church or any church property from the laity. Now, this is going to be a big deal going forward since at this time it was the practice of the secular rulers not only to pick the bishops, but sometimes to invest them with the symbols of their office. For example, they'd be the ones, not another bishop, to hand the crozier to the new bishop. So a ruler would use this symbolic gesture to show that I'm really the one in charge. I'm the one you have to listen to, not the hierarchy of the church. Or a ruler would use parish property or other offices as a reward for a faithful servant or a family that he wanted to take care of. Now, this process of church reform continued going forward. Another area where Nicholas was active was in the reform of the Church of Milan. The clergy in Milan had a reputation of being so corrupt and the lay people so scandalized and outraged that a group of reform-minded citizens called the Patarini, 
banded together and refused to support or attend masses that were celebrated by corrupt clergy. The name Patari means rag pickers. It was a nickname given them by the clergy and the anti-reform movement because most of them were common people, average, pious workers and family members. Pope Nicholas sent St. Peter Damien and the Bishop of Lucca, Ansem de Baggio, to Milan to settle the dispute and clean up the Church of Milan. Now, the corrupt clerics there were not happy about this, and they're going to try and kick uh, the reforming bishops and priests out. But the situation came to a head when St. Peter Damien appeared before a crowd in the cathedral and preached a long and powerful sermon on the role and authority of the Holy See and the need for true reform. He and Anselm then got to business, saying that going forward, there could absolutely be no more simony and clerics could not receive their parish by means of or from wealthy lay nobles in the city. Now, priests could keep their current assignments if they did penance and if they agreed to live celibacy going forward. Otherwise, they would have to leave. Now, this didn't completely solve the problem, but it was a good start. But the demands of the Paterini weren't fully met, especially since the corrupt Archbishop Guido was left in charge. Appeals were made to the Pope, and eventually a synod in Rome settled most of the outstanding questions. Now, the other major event in Nicholas's papacy dealt with southern Italy. If you remember from past episodes, there had been at this time an influx of Norman mercenaries in Sicily and southern Italy, and eventually they decided they should just take things over themselves. Now, the papacy had a mixed policy towards the Normans before this point, with Leo IX being the most opposed to the Norman growth in the south, and assisted by Hildebrand, who had already gone south, and Desiderius, the abbot of Monte Cassino, Nicholas began a different tact. He tried to find an alliance with the Normans. And it was needed. The antipope Benedict X was still holed up in his family territory of Tusculum. Allying with the Normans, Nicholas was defeated Benedict X and forced him to drop his claim to the papacy. Moving south from there, Nicholas held a synod in Melfi, in Norman territory in southern Italy, and greeted the Norman leaders Richard of Aversa and Robert Guiscard, and we'll hear more about him much later. Robert Guiscard was a Norman mercenary who arrived in southern Italy about, with about 40 men, and by this time he had basically taken charge of a large army and was fighting the Byzantine attempts to retake southern Italy. And at the end of the synod, Robert swore allegiance to the Pope and promised to uphold papal prerogatives and protect the Pope if under attack. This is going to be a big deal. This new Norman influence in southern Italy affected the hierarchy and diocesan structures in the region. So if you remember, up to this point, southern Italy was mainly influenced by the Greeks and by Greek-speaking Christians who were more oriented towards Constantinople. With the Norman influence and takeover, more Latin influences were entering into the area. Nicholas began the process of reorganizing the diocese and appointing more Latin Rite bishops in the south to meet this new changing demand. The Normans would eventually play a huge role in this story. We're going to hear a lot more about them. It's going to be a really important part that this alliance has grown. But Nicholas, unfortunately, will not. Before we wrap things up, we have one final hiccup at the end of his papacy that we need to cover. Apparently, the reform movement, though working through Italy, was not popular elsewhere, and cracks in the relationship between the Holy Roman Empire and its boy king, Henry IV, and the papacy were starting to emerge. Pope Nicholas had sent a cardinal to help spread the reform movement to France and Germany. In Germany, things did not go well. The German court did not like the independence shown by the church at the Easter Synod, and especially did not like how little role was given to the emperor in in nomine domini when it came to papal elections. So the pope in Rome was getting a little too powerful and needed to be put in his place. So the cardinal legate to German was not allowed to meet the emperor. On top of that, after he left Germany for Rome, a group of German bishops was convened, which basically excommunicated Nicholas II. 
Nicholas II wrote back to them a letter confirming all he had done and not backing down an inch. But before things could be completely resolved, the Pope passed away on July 27, 1061. He was buried in Florence in the old cathedral church, and he was succeeded by one of those Milanese reformers, Alexander II. But we will talk about him next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave a review or rate us. That helps people find the show. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>